Well, let me invite you to turn, turn to Psalm 46. We have sung uh, Martin Luther's hymn based upon this particular psalm. Psalm 46. Hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we ask now that you would open your word. Indeed, these are powerful words. And you use your power and might to bless your people and to honor your name. Impress this truth upon our hearts and lives, we pray, and we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening we've gathered and the sons of Korah have come to sing to us again. Now, they're not quite like the Oak Ridge Boys or my favorite, the Darling family. Do you remember them from uh, Andy Griffith? But you have to admit that they do give us, uh, uh, they do have a way with words here with Psalm 40. Six. Uh, this is the psalm that Martin Luther uh, translated into German, and then it's been translated a couple of different times into English as a mighty fortress is our God. And so this evening we gather around this text not just to tap our toes, but to let the sons of Korah move our souls in love to our Heavenly Father. You see, here they teach us a basic truth that we need to know for Christian living, that the Lord God is our only hope. The Lord God is our only hope in life and in death. He is our hope. The passage begins so memorably, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. And as these words ring in our ears, we remember that God did indeed Protect Israel from all of his and her enemies. Uh, this opening line is translated a number of different ways depending upon your version. Our refuge and strength in, 
in the ESV and the NASB. Miles Cloverdale in 1539 translated it, God is a defense and a tower. Thomas Carlyle in the 19th century with his uh, translation that was so memorable uh, to the British uh, church said, a safe stronghold, our God is still. But he is for us a mighty fortress, a bulwark never failing. No matter what the translation, the image is very sure. It was common to have uh, uh, not a fortress or a fort in the same way that uh, we see in Cinderella and and at uh, Disney World and Disneyland, uh, but to have a a fortified facility in which you could flee and and you could uh, pull up the ladder or you could uh, bar the door so that you would be protected from marauding enemies who would pass by. It's not just in the Holy Land that you have this uh, architectural feature. You know, the most wild and uh, dangerous part of all of Britain is not in the northern part of the highlands. It's in that uh, area and region of conflict between uh, the peoples of England and the peoples of Scotland. Uh, That's the realm in which the... uh, Nixons and the Armstrongs and and other families uh, with famous names uh, grew up and and they switched sides from one country to the other depending upon whoever was uh, the most uh, economically successful at the time. Uh, They would raid uh, to the south if that was in their favor or to the north if that was in their favor. And that whole area is given to lots of fog and, and the the, uh, the lay of the land is such that there are, are some deep little valleys and nooks and crannies just perfectly designed for taking stolen sheep and cattle and herding them in where no man can see. And so marauding bands traveled through generations in that area, and a particular kind of high tower, a stronghold, was developed perfect for the place. Uh, it is a it is a square facility on the ground, but then it goes straight up, and there's there are no doors or windows on the first floor. If you want to enter it, you have to climb up a ladder, and the door is on the second floor, like some sort of postmodern building. And so, if the Armstrongs or the Nixons or the the English or the Scots come uh, to steal you and your family and put you to death, you just climb up the ladder and pull it up after you. Lock the door and sing psalms. What else is there to do? The picture here is very similar. That God is our high tower into which His people flee in times of danger. That He protects us from attacking enemies. We don't know the exact episode which is reflected here in this passage. Uh, We don't know the occasion which might have prompted on a human level, the sons of Korah to sit down and, and to pick their harps and to tune their strings and sharpen their quills. But what we do know is that it might have been an attack, for example, by the Ammonites and the Moabites. We see in Second Chronicles chapter 20 that, that Jehoshaphat faced such a marauding band who came to try to destroy the capital of the people of God. Who was there to defend the nation and the state and the capital and the temple of God? The Lord God Almighty. The Lord mighty in battle, as the psalmist says. He is our refuge and strength. He is our very present help in time of trouble. 
And God had repeatedly, down through the history of Israel, shown himself to be faithful to her. Faithful to her because he was more fundamentally faithful to his covenant promises. Faithful to himself, to his own word and will, to his publicly stated and enacted commitment to save his people from all of his and their enemies. The sons of Korah have set that tradition and covenant commitment of God to song so that the people of God in every age might sing it and rejoice. But they were not the only ones to sing this psalm. In following generations, Psalm 46 was sung, but it was not always lived as we move from the time of David, the great psalmist, towards the division of the kingdom, the ultimate dispersal and absorption of the northern ten tribes and the crushing of the two tribes in the south. Oh, there were times of unfaithfulness and forgetting of the Lord that would come. God was still faithful to His covenant, but with reprobate ones whose spiritual life was broken off from the stock of the blessed line, they tasted of His covenant cursings. On those occasions, God would not be their refuge. God would not be their strength because they had rejected Him as their God. They put no trust in Him for their salvation. And He would forsake them to their enemies. And so off into captivity they would go to Babylon, to that place where they would sit down by a strange river and in a strange land sing the Word of God. And so they would sing this psalm, ironically. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar in foam and the mountains tremble at its swelling. And that's exactly what happened in their lives. Their world was all upside down. They were the sons and daughters of the king of all the earth. And his temple had been leveled to the ground. His worship had been pillaged. His people had been carried away like chattel. They were in humiliation and suffering and oppression. God had not rescued them in their disobedience. God had left them to the hand of their enemies. And so now, learning from the stings of these scorpions, they sat down in a strange place and sang this psalm. Was it given to mock them? Certainly it humbled their hearts. Certainly was a part of that process of chastising them so that they might see and feel the error of their ways. That their children and their children's children might grow up learning that they had disobeyed their Heavenly Father. They had broken covenant with Him. They had despised and spurned Him. And look at the disaster they had reaped. But if God had let them be overrun, that meant also 
that he must have done that for a very profound reason in providence. There must be another. There must be another yet to come who would sing this psalm with every note in its right place, who would sing this psalm more truly and more faithfully than they themselves had ever imagined. God gave this as His inspired word to be sung in every age from that point forward. And in their mouths, as they formed those words in notes, their hearts were taught to lift up their heads in repentance and look to the Lord for another. And there was another. Another who came and did all things right who never turned away from the will and word of His heavenly Father, who kept all of the Mosaic Code, not breaking one commandment, who kept all of the Ten Commandments, lived at peace and righteousness, both with His heavenly Father and with His fellow men and women and boys and girls. Jesus sang this psalm. Jesus took this psalm upon His lips and He sang it during the time of His humiliation to His heavenly Father in worship. His Father at that time then again preserved Him and protected His life. Do you remember the time in the temple? Where He was confronted by the Pharisees who were enraged at His claims to be one with His heavenly Father. They were furious at His assertion and miraculous proof of His divinity. And they picked up stones with which to stone him when they rebuked, when he rebuked them from the word of God. But what does the text tell us? The gospel says that he slipped out among them. That his heavenly father hid him, as it were, sheltered invisible in his protecting cup of hands. On Palm Sunday, Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem as the triumphant King of Israel. Under the nose and in the face of the concern of the leadership of Israel, the Sanhedrin and the established synagogue system, furious and fearful at who he might be and what he might do, he entered Jerusalem because God this time protected him through the crowd. That same crowd in God's mighty providence protected him, which in just a few days would do what? They would stand before the Roman official and cry out, Crucify him! Crucify him! God, by His mighty hand, used that crowd to His glory to protect His Son and so fulfill Psalm 46 just as He had promised. You see, Jesus was on a mission from His heavenly Father. He was on a path that He had to complete. From His earliest of days in ministry, He had learned from the Word of God and by the Spirit of God from His Father that His calling was true and sure, that He indeed was called to walk a road of suffering, 
that had been prophesied in the scriptures. That the suffering servant was not just in some way and somehow the nation of Israel, but that he himself was the focal point of that nation. He himself was the focal point of all of that theocracy and all of its worship. And he would suffer and die for his people as surely as he would lead them in triumph as in his second coming. And so God's mighty hand of protection was upon him and his life was defended as he marched all along that way to the appointment he must surely keep at Calvary. And my friend, if you love the Lord, if you trust in Him alone for your salvation, then you can sing this psalm because Jesus can sing this psalm before you. You see, if you trust in Him, if you love Him, if He is yours and you are His, then you find these words being placed into your mouth by your Savior. And so you can sing them in Him. The same Heavenly Father, the same Holy Spirit, the same Lord of providence and history on heaven and earth watching over you. It's not that, it's not that we're better than the Old Testament saints of Israel. It's rather that God is just as faithful. And He has always been. And He is more abundant in His blessings and kindness to us in His Son. Salvation is of the Jews. And thank God that that salvation has spilled over, has spilled over into our laps. So many of us here, from the background stock of wicked and evil, and God dishonoring Gentile nations. Oh, we have so much to be thankful for as we too can cry out, God is our refuge. God is our strength. He helps us in times of trouble because God protects also the life of the believer that your life may be used, that your life may have purpose, that your life may be focused and expended in exactly the circumstance and effect that God, the sovereign God, wants in His kingdom. Oh, God is your refuge. And in verse 4, we hear that God is with us. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so the songs of Korah, as they composed under inspiration, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, this particular text they sat on Mount Zion and they sang at the top of their voice. They sang about Jerusalem. They sang about the city of God. They sang about that place where the capital of the nation God had called out from among all of the other nations would sit there and, and shine like a city on a hill. More importantly, 
that place, that city, was where God pitched His tent. Where His tabernacle was settled. Where His temple was built permanently. Looking and longing for the full fulfillment of redemptive history. Oh, you see, the tent, the tent which was made out of fabric and required repair and was not permanent in itself, it it had to reach a state of permanence because God in redemptive history pushes, pushes the days of the nations and His agenda of salvation along according to His perfect will. The focal point of the religious life of Israel would become permanent in that place for the time appointed. It would be the dwelling place of God in His evangelical presence with His people. It would be the spot on which the Shekinah glory would come down and amaze His people and indicate and sacramentalize for them that He was with them and they were safe in Him. Jerusalem was a special place because of that mount and because of that temple and because of the Holy of Holies in that place. Now today, Jerusalem is also in that that particular small piece of real estate in the city is, is something about which many are obsessed. The, the Jews are obsessed about that temple mount. And, and there, are many, there are many in the Jewish religion who have their own plans for that place. And then there are the Muslims. Who in the unfolding history of the providence of God were able to secure that city and, and on that place build a, a special mosque around the the, ro- the, the rock, that, that dome of the rock in that place. And those two groups are willing to kill each other over that particular place. Back in the Dark Ages, Christians were eager or willing to do the same. Uh, they were earthly minded. Uh, they thought that that place was a, a key to spiritual prosperity and, and to the uh, abundance of God's blessing and provision. And, and so they got confused and darkened in their mind, being willing to fight and die for a patch of real estate that would not help their spirituality one whit. Oh, oh, that place may have military value. It may have cultural and historical significance. It may be well worth fighting for in a righteous cause as a strategic location. But God is not obsessed with real estate. He is able to make lots of rocks and lots of hills. He can lay stone upon stone by the word of His power and make cities shining twice and three times as large. Oh, there is nothing too hard for Him. Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Jerusalem holding the temple complex were always all along intended to point and direct us to something better still, to Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the Lord is not ultimately interested just in real estate. However, He is profoundly interested in the Son of His love. He's profoundly interested in the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ in us and for us. And so it's union and communion with the Father through the Son and by the Spirit that the Christian life is all about. 
We can give glory to God in our lives only in fellowship with Him by His Son. And so verse 5, which says God is in the midst of her, is speaking of that Old Testament shadowy time in which that place and that real estate pointed to something better still in Jesus Christ our Lord. Did He not take on flesh and tabernacle among us? Did He not enter His temple, every stone of which pointed to His incarnation and His holy life and blessing to His people? Oh, this abiding presence of Christ in and through His Holy Spirit is something all believers enjoy until the day of resurrection and gladness when we enter that of which we sang earlier, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the golden. You see, this particular passage and the glory that it gives of God being in our midst and making God making glad His city and His people, it points us to the new heavens and to the new earth, to the new Jerusalem which will come down from heaven. There will dwell, we will dwell in His presence and we will sin no more. We will be established in righteousness. We will bask in His presence and love and serve Him all our days. Oh, how much we have to be thankful for that is promised us in this psalm. And it comes to pass only by the power of Almighty God. You see, in verses 8 to 11, we read of the power of God in creation, the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He is the Master, the Creator and Controller of the cosmos. And so He who has brought it into being is able to shape and mold its life and history according to His eternal purposes. So He calls it out of nothing. By the word of His power, He says, let there be light, and it is so. And He is able to govern the unfolding providence of our days. The psalmists here, the sons of Korah, sing of His power to make wars cease, of His power to win the battle, of His power to destroy caches of weapons, to crush the enemy, And so their spirit is broken and they give up their fight. Oh, God is able not just to keep the peace, but to make the peace by the power of His Word and by the power of His might. And all of this points to His power, not just in providence, but particularly in providence with regard to redemption. For the God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is with us. And He is the one who makes peace for us by His supernatural power and might. New life comes out of death. As surely as the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. Is Jesus not the conquering King who rides august and without harm, trampling His enemies in the end. Oh, He has come to us in humiliation. But you will yet see Him come in power. And you will but yet have your face glow with glory and praise to Him. 
who will defeat the last enemy death and will reign over all the earth, warming it, lighting it by the presence of His countenance. This, this Lord God is your only hope in life and in death. And so the psalmists are singing for us in powerful strains that we must flee from God in times of trouble to His covenant promises. The promises given to Adam that there would be salvation from the devil by the seed of the woman to come. Covenant promises to Noah that the earth would not pass away. That it would not be destroyed until the covenant promises of God all came to their fruition. The covenant promises to Father Abraham that he would be our God and we would be his people. That Abraham would be one from whom mighty, a mighty nation would come. And that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. And the covenant promises to Moses who was used not just to bring his people out of bondage, but also to teach them so exactingly their need of freedom from the bondage of sin. Did God not give his covenant of law through Moses? Were they not taught by the Ten Commandments thundered down from Sinai, which resonated and echoed in their own hearts because they were made in the image of God, that they were to love the Lord their God and their neighbor as their self. And each one of them fell so far short. And if that lesson in law were not enough, was there not a civil order and commandment set given that would tie them up in all sorts of obligations that would make them different and so protected from the cultures of the nations? And was there not a, a breathtaking and curious ceremonial law with priests and garments and sacrifices and the temple and festivals and a joyful sustenance and partaking even of so much good of the meat and the sacrifice given for sin to God. Oh, their close and intimate relationship with their Heavenly Father, that their lives were interwoven by the work of the Spirit and by faith in Him. All of this, their need of the Savior being reinforced by the laws of the Mosaic Covenant. And David thinking that it was embarrassing to live in a house of cedar while God dwelt in tents. He purposed to build a house for God. And God said, no, I have something even better in mind. Your son can do the building, but I am going to build a house for you. And your son will be my son. And your line will never be broken. You will have a son who is also my son who reigns eternally on the throne. And all of this, all of these covenant promises are fulfilled, yea and amen, in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so you must flee to Christ, the sons of Korah are singing. You must take your refuge in Him. 
You must trust in Christ alone for your salvation. And you must find Him each and every day meet for your needs. Moment by moment. Step by step. All the way in your Christian life. Filled with Him. And His life which can come to you only by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is your refuge. He is your strength. So where were you last night? When the storm hit, where were you? Were you in your house or in your car? I hope you weren't standing out in the middle of a field with nowhere to hide. Uh, Just think, if you had been out in the middle of one of these cattle fields, which I think rolls to the other side of the earth, at least as far as I can see. If you're standing there in the middle of the field, no vehicle, no one to rescue you or hear your cry, and all of that storm and rain came down upon you, what would you do? God. Particularly the Son of God. The Son of God incarnate. He is your strong tower, your refuge and your strength. He is the one to whom you flee. He is the one who is able to shelter you from the storm. He is tabernacled among us and you can trust in Him, not just that you might be saved at one point in your life, but that each and every day you might live in Him and be sanctified by Him and fitted for life forevermore with Him in the new heavens and new earth. He is your refuge. And He is your peace. He is the author of creation. He is the governor of your days. He is the Savior of your soul. And so He can give you peace in this life. Your life is not so easy. They invented this horrible thing called multitasking. And the pace of your life is absolutely frenetic. There's not one person here who doesn't know the stress of mind and heart and body that comes in running ten directions sometimes at the same time. And storms roll in. Sometimes the tempest that blows blows in your heart in life makes last night's Storm looked like a walk in the park on a spring day. You face temptations and you don't always win. You face frustrations and you don't always respond in the most Christ-like manner. But Jesus, Jesus is your strong and high tower and you can flee To Him. And He is able to settle your soul and calm your life. Look to Him. Look to Him in hope. And you will never be disappointed. Let us pray.